Welcome to Freya's Fairy Tales. We believe fairy tales are both stories we enjoyed as children and something that we can achieve ourselves. Each week, we will talk to authors about their favorite fairy tales when they were kids and their adventure to holding their very own fairy tale in their hands. At the end of each episode, we will finish off with a fairy tale or short story read as close to the original author's version as possible. I am your host, Freya Victoria. I'm an audiobook narrator that loves reading fairy tales, novels, and bringing stories to life through narration. I am also fascinated by talking to authors and learning about their why and how for creating their stories. We've included all of the links for today's author and our show in the show notes. Be sure to check out our website and sign up for our newsletter for the latest on the podcast. Today is part two of two, where we are talking to Alexia Onyx about her novels. After today, you will have heard about starting by writing poetry and short stories, and evolving to partial novels that never become fully fledged, making sure you love your story, learning as you go and improving, figuring out social media marketing, building your author path around what you love to avoid burnout, and hiring out for the things you need help with. Come out, come out. She's creeping slowly toward death. He's determined to keep her alive. Aiden, my little wraith torments herself in a desperate attempt to escape from the pain that runs deep in her veins. I could be that escape if she'd only let me. I will own her pain, her suffering and her pleasure. I just need her to see me. Sky. Every day is a burden that pushes me closer and closer to my end. I always found the notion of death romantic. I never could have predicted how right I would be. Come Out, Come Out is a spicy paranormal dark romance with a plus-sized main character, depression representation, bi and pan main characters. For readers who loved Tate and Violet and wanted to be Casper and Cat. Please note, this book contains heavy themes including depression, suicidal ideation, grief, and loss. A complete list of content warnings is provided by the author. So you are, I mean, I feel like you said about, you know, you're constantly changing things with how you promote. I feel like algorithms on social media make us have to do that all the time anyways. Yeah, there's a lot of pivoting. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting though. I find it it I find it fun to like kind of play with different ideas or different way of marketing, but it's also uh-huh. like hard to keep up or like predict what is gonna do well and what isn't. Right. I, I kind of just take the it's basically gonna be like a vlog approach. Yeah. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. <laughs> like Yeah, fair. That's that's usually my response to everybody. I get negative stuff on like um my other podcast uh is kind of like audiobook classic novel style mm-hmm. thing and so on that one I'll get people like complaining about my narrating style and I'm like isn't it my comments are always like isn't it great that you can go find someone who is a narrator that you like yeah. and leave me alone <laughs> like <laughs> yeah I feel like people just feel like since <clears throat> they can have an opinion on something they should have an opinion on everything with social media yeah. unfortunately like I'm a big advocate of you don't if it's not hurting anything and it's not for you, just scroll by. Like, yes. I'm a big scroller. <laughs> yes. like, I'm not in. I use the not interested button like it's my day job. <laughs> I don't know that I do that. The only the only buttons that I usually will use, if there's something that is just like, I never want to see any of this ever again, I'll block them. Um, yeah, fair. I don't think I use the not interested button. Occasionally I'll get the weird little pop-ups that's like the, is this yeah safe or so I don't even know what the pop-ups say I just click them away I don't answer the question so (laughs) I'm like I don't know what it's for if it would hurt someone if I was like I don't want to watch that so I'm like we'll just just click it away go away (laughs) so how have you how long ago did your first book come out um you said about (laughs) two years for TikTok yeah so my uh my first like solo book came out last July um, but I was in an anthology last, like, March, so 2021. Wait, what year is it? <laughs> Sorry. 23. So, yeah. yeah, like, uh, a year and a half about writing or, like, publishing. Okay. And so in – I totally forgot my question of why I asked you that. Right, <laughs> <laughs> happens. And it, it's, it's somewhere over there. I don't know. It'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. So you – 
has it been easier building up this second pen name? Because you started this one a couple, I know I followed you a couple months ago. Yeah, I think I started this one in August. Oh, just exactly a couple months ago. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um, So it's just so different because with the other pen name, it started out, like I just changed my name. I was a book talk account originally. So I had built up a couple thousand followers before I even started talking about my books. Mm. Um, So it's hard to, I honestly have been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm trying to gauge like how well I'm doing. (laughs) And (laughs) also like planning and stuff. Um, I just, it's hard not to compare when you have two, you know? Um, So I feel like it's going pretty decently well. I would love to be doing better, you know? Like I would love to be able, you know? (laughs) But uh, my main goal was hitting a thousand followers so I could put my pre-orders, pre-order links up. Uh-huh. And like, by the time I had it sold, like on sale, I would have, be able to share the link. Cause that was the hardest part for the first like month was not being able to like, I'd have to like go to my Instagram and you know how uh-huh. it's just annoying when you have to go from one platform to another. Yeah. I know as a user, um, so I couldn't have my link, like my beacons link in there. Um, but now that I've hit a thousand, I'm kind of like, whatever happens, happens. Like, I'm going to keep posting continuously. I'm going to try and like be engaging and like talking to other people. But like, that was my main goal and just like getting this set up. And then we'll see how it goes. Like, I would love to grow this bigger than my other account, but it takes time. And like, I guess I'm not a TikTok expert, like right. <laughs> by any means, you know, I've never had like that viral success. So like, I don't really know how this is going to go, but I do feel like a lot more comfortable with this genre. And mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like as this is like my main genre of reading. So I feel like I'm much more familiar with the readership um, and like the genre conventions and stuff. So I, I feel like it's a little bit, e- it's definitely a lot easier for me to market here because my other books are like, kind of in between genres frankly so that's always been a hard thing to like Uh overcome you know um so yeah I don't know if I answered that question I just kind of rambled for a minute there (laughs) you're fine yeah mine actually it's so weird with the link thing so when I started on TikTok because I have like an ungodly amount of accounts on TikTok because of all the podcasts (laughs) and pseudonyms um but when I started the first podcast you could put links on any profile like it didn't Mm -hmm. matter your followers and then when this podcast started is like right after they changed it to you need a thousand followers so this one has never had a link on it um but then when I started the author account I um words just left me when I started the author account they've made it now where if you tie it to like an LLC like a business you can Mm -hmm. have a link in it and so that's I I was able to tie it to my LLC for publishing so that I could have the link for the author thing because like you said I didn't want them to have to either go to my narrator profile which does have more than a thousand followers on it or have to go somewhere to some other platform to click the links to order the things um so yeah yeah it used to just be if you just made your account a business account, you could do it. You didn't have to like put in an EIN and all that fun stuff. That's what I thought because when I first started Book Talk, like we were able to add wish lists like really quickly, uh-huh. and I was trying to remember what the like. But now you just reminded me that that was a thing. I was like, am yeah. I? risk for remembering i feel like this was not a thing no yeah it was you just had to make your account it had to be uh it couldn't be just a normal account it couldn't be a personal one yeah. it had to be like there's two different ones business or creator i think creator is the other account there was like other account types and you just had to be yeah. one of the others to have a link yeah and then they took that away so <laughs> love that so so fun um when the typical TikTok, they take away so many useful features and add the most random that's I think just typical social media yeah true true for, for sure yeah I mean yeah Instagram does that all the time so that's fair so what is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten and the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten oh that's tough um let's see I would say the best piece of advice is probably to um build your career path around your own interests um because otherwise I feel like it's like what people say about like doing a job that you love which really is almost impossible in today's economy (laughs) but with writing as an author I feel like it's really applicable because 
if you're writing things that are of interest to you and you're engaging with parts of the community that are interesting to you, it doesn't, it's, it's less likely to burn you out. Mm-hmm. And even when it does, you're still getting some level of enjoyment of it, even if you're just passively kind of engaging and learning at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so I think that's been really helpful for me because I have hit like pretty bad periods of burnout or like, I don't know if I can do this long term. It's so hard. And like really considering like, my own personality and what I enjoy and what I'm interested in and like letting that drive the decisions I've made that past that point have really helped me like see this long, like as a long-term thing and like be more hopeful about longevity. Mm-hmm. Excuse Worst me. advice. Oh, I don't even know. <laughs> I think people who just like give really rigid advice and like, are very much of like a single-mindedness where you have to do things a certain way mm-hmm. and that you have to write a certain way that I think is the worst advice universally because there's no way with such a diverse community and writers coming from all different backgrounds and like all of that that I just don't think that type of advice is ever really useful it's I think it's very harmful actually for new writers because it mm-hmm. really just like makes things seem impossible and like if it doesn't work for you and especially as like a neurodivergent person, I found like so much advice is just so not considerate of people whose brains work differently or have uh-huh. different abilities. Like, and that's always been something I've been very frust- like frustrated with. And like, I will definitely like push back on those kind of ideas um, because I find them very limiting and just, um, they really kill people's like uh, hope, I feel like, <laughs> that they're going to succeed. Well, and it's like if everybody so there's all kinds of books out there about writing and the craft Mm -hmm. of writing and all of that. But if everybody really followed the same exact three act nine chapter structure, if everybody if every single book followed that exact same trajectory throughout the book, none of us would want to read because it would be so boring. It's Mm -hmm. like. I will say this all day long, and I am so sorry to people that love this type of books, but Amish books, books about the Amish, it is, they are all almost exact, and they tend to be in more like Christian fiction genre, Mm -hmm. but they are all almost the exact same storyline. Just pluck out the character names, put new character names, add a new, you know, climax thing but they're like almost exactly all the same book Mm -hmm. (laughs) so like you know you read so many of those and you're like because I would for a long time that's all like I would get for Christmas would be these Mm -hmm. Amish books and I'm like I've read this already haven't I (laughs) yeah well I find that can be true for a lot of different things like formulaic writing where people like where there's not a lot of variety in that in some some cases I've seen like where I'm like I feel like I it's so easy to predict certain books because of how strictly some people follow these like formulas I mm-hmm. mean in some in some genres that's what people want like right to comedies you know people want the formula people will want the predictability it's a comfort thing but for mm-hmm. other genres say thrillers um I don't think it works you know no no so you need the, I definitely the notice that weirdness yeah mm-hmm well, and that's too, like, look at the books that people talk about more. It's not the ones that are just like everything else. It's the ones that, oh, my gosh, they broke the norms mm-hmm. with this book. And that's what people talk about. Um, for example, Fourth Wing coming out at a time where there wasn't a ton of dragon books. Had that book mm-hmm. come out at the same time that Aragon series was coming out, that would have been a different thing because True. that was already dragons. <laughs> like, yeah. But I, at least I don't know of any other, like, majorly done dragon books since then. I mean, maybe there is, and I just Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a huge fantasy reader, so I'm not super in the know, but I, I hadn't heard of any. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's something that following, following the trends is great, and writing to market is great, mm-hmm. but how long does it take you to write a book? Will that still be written to the market in, you know, however long it takes you to write that book? Yeah. But things do eventually come back around. So <laughs> yeah. while you're sitting here promoting your book that you spent all this time writing that you hopefully love so that you want to promote it, you know, hopefully yeah. eventually it'll come back around and you'll be in a good place because your book's already out there. Yeah, that's definitely something I struggled with a lot when I first started on TikTok as an author was like this, like, want to write to market, like, and capture these, like, moments, like, a lot of people are able to do. 
but I've just come to the realization I'm not a fast enough writer to be like personally for me to feel like it's a, a worthwhile investment of my time mm-hmm. to be able to like really capture those moments because I feel like things come and go so quickly and if you're not like quick to the jump you're not like in my opinion like it's usually not going to be like the one that really like stands out and like does super well obviously there are a lot of them do this but for me I just don't think it's in my skill set as of right now as an author to be able to really capture those like those big like pop culture moments or like those like trending things so uh-huh. I I had I had tried to write a couple of those and like by the time I was getting through the process I was like this is not gonna be done <laughs> or yeah. to promote in the amount of time we need to and I was like so I really shifted away from that right now at least like I definitely think like I will never say I won't ever do it because like one I know I've gotten way faster as a writer in the last year and two like you just never know what might spark like creativity but for me like I used to be so like I wanted to be one of those authors so badly because I love like I just loved seeing it like explode mm-hmm. the like and like how success. engaged you know but I just yeah. realized like I don't have that skill set so it's okay <laughs> it's okay like you know so I really had to kind of like let that go <laughs> Yeah, I think of all the authors that I've talked to on here, I've only had very, very few that were like, yeah, I wrote my book in like three weeks. <laughs> like mm-hmm. for the most part, it's been, you know, months of writing and editing and and all of that. Um, and not that three week person put out their first draft into the world because that was not the case. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Well, it's also, too, it's hard to coordinate with other professionals, like your editors and mm-hmm. stuff. Like, it's really, honestly, I feel like the timing just has to be right with these things. And for mm-hmm. me, like, I have, like, the worst luck with timing. There's always so much going on. Like, there's, like, emergencies on my end. There's emergencies on other people's end. So uh, everything I've written has been, like, pushed back, pushed back, pushed back for many reasons. So I just could not handle that kind of pressure. And I wouldn't, (laughs) like, unless I was, like, so adamant about publishing something, I I wouldn't want to be able to put put that kind of pressure on the people I work with because I know that's just not, like, how our lives really are set up right now. So I think it's really a timing thing and, like, the relationships you have with people and, like, their availability. So... You know, that's a huge factor into it, too. So did you do um, so I know you said you hired someone to do your cover for this one that's coming out. Did you also like did you have people to do all the parts or did you do like any of the formatting or like any of it yourself? Or have you I'm a firm believer for myself that I will attempt to do things myself. And then if if it looks like garbage, I will then pay yeah. someone who knows what they're doing. So that's fair. <laughs> what um did you do any any parts of the process or did you hire professionals? Yeah, um, so I actually hire out for everything. I, I do want to learn how to format in the future. Um right now I just don't have the mental capacity to do it. Honestly, like I I have a hard time learning um, new like skills because my Uh day job is like constant, like harsh learning curves, like almost every Uh single day. So when I'm in my like personal time, like either I have to choose to be creative and write, or I have to choose to like learn to do something. And right now Uh creativity is like the thing that gets me through the day, like having my writing time. So to like try and also learn a skill is just not something I can do right now. I have a very like intense job. So I would love to learn to format because I love the formatting process. Like I'm very heavily involved because I like, like the chapter backgrounds. I like all these little details throughout the whole book. And I wanted to tell a story. Like I am very intense about that um, Mm -hmm. creatively. So I work really closely with my formatters, um, but I cannot put it together myself because I don't have the skills yet, but I would (laughs) love to learn. I just don't think that's going to be in likely until I want to try and learn um how to use like the basic functions with like some of the shorter books like I'm going to put out a couple novellas in the next year so I want to try and do those myself Uh and I probably won't do like decorative formatting for those but like my novels I still want to like have this like idea that I I always have like an idea going so I want to like have that executed by someone who knows what they're doing so for now I don't do my own formatting but it's something I do hope to learn just like so I can do it for like things I want to get out quickly Uh um whether I could ever do like the kind of thing that I actually would want to be able to do is a a different question (laughs) like I said like I'm not the greatest at technology like when it comes And, uh, and honestly like I really struggle with like alignment and like sizing and stuff like just um my my brain like the way it works like I've always had a really hard time with like measuring and like so for like graphic design aka interior formatting that's decorative that is very important yeah Uh, (laughs) a little bit (laughs) 
the point where I could do inter like decorative interior formatting, but I do want to learn basic. Editing is just an absolute no for me. I have a really hard time with like that. I like, I can barely, like, I do like the bare minimum editing. I really do hire out like a lot of, I hire like all the different types of editing to go through it. And then I also do typo hunts because I just can, I, it's always been a struggle for me. I'm really bad at proofreading. I'm really bad at punctuation. Like that just as a neurodivergent person, it just like my, it doesn't work that like my brain cannot do those things. Like well, I don't, I don't think even I know how to use question marks. Like I, I do know <laughs> how to use them, but like because of the way I speak, like my inflection and stuff, like I don't register things like as like a question or an exclamation, like the way other people would. It's periods, mm -hmm. periods, periods, commas, commas, like semicolon. Yeah. So it's just very out of control um, punctuation and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So like on all of those different levels, I really need like a good team that I trust. Um. So yeah, I will never be doing my own editing. There's just no way. Like I, even though I, I mean, I would love to be able to like, do it better but I just my brain does not catch those things it's like just like it puts together everything where it looks perfect I'm like oh good it looks great and then I find my editor will send me back like tons of revisions I'm like yep that makes sense <laughs> I don't think anyone should do their own line editing like yeah. at all because there are so many things like for me so I just got my line edits back um well just today I just finished doing the line edits mm -hmm. um and there's so many things in there that's like, I don't know. I mean, she would leave me like notes in the margin for like, oh, this is supposed to be italicized or oh, this is supposed to be whatever. And I'm looking at them and I'm going and I'm I'm like messaging her and I'm like, there is no way I will remember all of these things for the next book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, there are some that I will remember because it probably made me laugh the comment that she made about whatever it was. Um, but for the most part, I'm like, there's no way like one I don't want to go to school for editing at all yeah. I have no desire to go and learn all of that that's why I paid someone to do that for me <laughs> so I'm like there's no way that I'm going to be able to fit all of that in my head I would rather spend right. my time doing the writing and then have someone else come in after you know multiple other people have looked through it and helped clean it up mm -hmm. um now, things that I did do, I did purchase pro writing aid at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I had that to do a lot of the cleaning up. Um, so it got it got thrown through pro writing aid after every session of edits that I did. Um, so I wrote it. I threw it through pro writing aid, sent it to my alpha, edited it again, pro writing aid, sent it to the betas, edited <laughs> pro writing aid again. And then it went to the yeah. editor. So like my editor got like my third or fourth draft. So like there's not not a ton of drafts going on. I just did massive revisions in every yeah. draft of the process. And then it went to the editor who did the final cleaning up of everything so yeah I mean that, honestly like real big shout out to my editors because <laughs> I am such a messy writer I literally could not ever do this without like a professional editing team like they are like <laughs> saving grace because it's just so it's something that's just so hard for me and I could never ever do it <laughs> well and it's a good thing that like you know they're we all have heard the horror stories about the, you know, self-published author that put out the way unedited version of their book. And so, like, kudos to, like, knowing, hey, this is a shortcoming that I have and we need someone to help make it what it needs to be. Yeah. So, so that it doesn't look like hot garbage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would be scary if I put it out as, like, my first, second, third draft. Like, there's no way. <laughs> I mean, there are some, I know there are some authors that they do their own editing and I have read some and they did a really good job on their editing. I'm mm -hmm. just like, mine, mine would not look like that. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of friends who are really good at editing their own work or just they're really clean drafters and like props to them. I'm so impressed, but just like the way I just, it's not in my skill set. So I just kind of, I've let that go and I've had to be okay with it. And I just like, I'm so grateful to anyone who reads that like non-finished draft because <laughs> there's a lot going on as far as like punctuation. <laughs> like it's mostly yeah. punctuation for me and like uh, the way that like my, uh, what is it called? Just like the, the, my, the way I speak a lot of the time is like very different. It, it's the way I write. So like seeing that in writing can be a little bit harder for mm -hmm. some people. So like, it's really helpful for me to have people who like, you know, aren't hearing me speak to be like, Hey, this sounds kind of funky or like, you know, cause like for me, I'm, I'm, I'm like, that sounds amazing in my own head. Cause it's the way my speech pattern is, you know, yeah. but for other people, it's like, Hmm, this could probably make more sense. <laughs> 
All right. So as we close this out, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. Yeah. So the book is called Come Out, Come Out. It is a uh, paranormal dark romance, heavy on the dark romance, a little bit on the paranormal side because the main, the love interest is a ghost, um, which was really fun for me to play with. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a dark romance uh, about a ghost and a depressed girl who is living in this house where he died. And they are kind of both just in these very lonely states, kind of isolated in their own ways. And they are kind of circling around each other in this house. And uh, throughout the story, they get to know each other and it turns into a romance. It is pretty spicy. So hopefully if you're thinking about picking it up, you like that. Um, <laughs> we definitely get like a touch of like the possessive MMC. Um, so yes, um, I would say if you like American Horror Story, you will enjoy this. Um, if you like, you know, dark romance as a whole, um, I would not say it's like the movie Ghost at all. So if that's what you're picturing, I'm <laughs> so sorry, this will be disappointing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's very character driven too. Um, so I think it's really, it's a very emotional character driven read if those are what you like. But yeah, I'm excited to see how people respond to it. Um, it comes out November 13th um so yeah I think that pretty much sums it up the vibes at least I'm very much like a vibes describer I'm so bad at like doing the the plot pitch because I feel like with character driven stories it's it's very hard to be like this mm -hmm. is the plot without giving away like everything that happens you know? right. Right. <laughs> so yeah if you like those vibes I would say pick it up <laughs> thank you for coming on and enjoy the rest of your Saturday thank you too bye bye Alexia liked The Girl with the Green Ribbon as she got older. Today we'll be reading The Premature Burial by Edgar Allan Poe. Don't forget we're reading Les Mortes d'Arthur, the story of King Arthur and of his noble knights of the round table on our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. First, let me say that while The Girl with the Green Ribbon is not public domain, Edgar Allan Poe has some pretty disturbing stories that could also have made some more pretty disturbing children's stories. And here is quite a few of them. The Premature Burial There are certain themes of which the interest is all-absorbing, which are too entirely horrible for the purpose of legitimate fiction. These the mere romanticist must askew. If he does not wish to offend or to disgust... They are with propriety handled only when the severity and majesty of truth sanctify and sustain them. We thrill, for example, with the most intense of pleasurable pain over the accounts of the passage of the Bersina, of the earthquake at Lisbon, of the plague at London, of the massacre at St. Bartholomew, or of the stifling of the 123 prisoners in the black hole at Calcutta. But in these accounts, it is the fact. It is the reality. It is the history which excites. As inventions, we should regard them with simple abhorrence. I have mentioned some few of the more prominent and august calamities on record, but in these it is the extent, not less than the character of the calamity which so vividly impresses the fancy. I need not remind the reader that from the long and weird catalogue of human miseries, I might have selected many individual instances more replete with essential suffering than any of these vast generalities of disaster. The true wretchedness, indeed. The ultimate woe is particular, not diffuse. That the ghastly extremes of agony are endured by man the unit and never by man the mass. For this, let us thank a merciful God. To be buried while alive is beyond question the most terrific of these extremes which has ever fallen to the lot of mere mortality. And it has frequently, very frequently, so fallen will scarcely be denied by those who think. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy and vague. Who shall say where the one ends and where the other begins? We know that there are diseases in which occur total cessations of the apparent functions of vitality— and yet in which these cessations are merely suspensions, properly so-called. They are only temporary pauses in the incomprehensible mechanism. A certain period elapses, and some unseen mysterious principle again sets in motion the magic pinions and the wizard wheels. The silver cord was not forever loosed, nor the golden bowl irreparably broken. But where, meantime, was the soul? 
apart, however, from the inevitable conclusion, a priori that such causes must produce such effects, that the well-known occurrence of such cases of suspended animation must naturally give rise, now and then, to premature internments. Apart from this consideration, we have the direct testimony of medical and ordinary experience to prove that a vast number of such internments have actually taken place. I might refer at once, if necessary, to a hundred well-authenticated instances, one of very remarkable character, and of which the circumstances may be fresh in the memory of some of my readers, occurred, not very long ago, in the neighboring city of Baltimore, where it occasioned a painful, intense, and widely extended excitement. A wife of one of the most respectable citizens, a lawyer of eminence and a member of Congress, was seized with a sudden and unaccountable illness, which completely baffled the skill of her physicians. After much suffering, she died, or was supposed to die. No one suspected, indeed, or had reason to suspect that she was not actually dead. She presented all the ordinary appearances of death. The face assumed the usual pinched and sunken outline. The lips were of the usual marble pallor. The eyes were lusterless. There was no warmth. Pulsation had ceased. For three days, the body was preserved unburied, during which it had acquired a stony rigidity. The funeral, in short, was hastened on account of the rapid advance of what was supposed to be decomposition. The lady was deposited in her family vault, which for three subsequent years was undisturbed. At the expiration of this term, it was opened for the reception of a sarcophagus, but alas, how fearful a shock awaited the husband, who personally threw open the door. As its portal swung outwardly back, some white-appareled object fell rattling within his arms. It was the skeleton of his wife in her yet unmolded shroud. A careful investigation rendered it evident that she had revived within two days after her entombment, and her struggles within the coffin had caused it to fall from a ledge or shelf to the floor where it was so broken as to permit her escape. A lamp which had been accidentally left full of oil within the tomb was found empty. It might have been exhausted, however, by evaporation. On the uttermost of the steps which led down into the dread chamber was a large fragment of the coffin, with which it seemed that she had endeavored to arrest attention by striking the iron door. While thus occupied, she probably swooned or possibly died through sheer terror, and in failing her shroud became entangled in some ironwork, which projected interiorly. Thus she remained, and thus she rotted erect. In the year 1810, a case of living inhumation happened in France, attended with circumstances which go far to warrant the assertion that truth is indeed stranger than fiction. The heroine of the story was a Mademoiselle Victorine La Forcade, a young girl of illustrious family, of wealth, and of great personal beauty, among her numerous suitors was Julien Bosset, a poor literateur or journalist of Paris. His talents and general amiability had recommended him to the notice of the heiress, by whom he seems to have been truly beloved. But her pride of birth decided her finally to reject him and to wed a Monsieur Renel, a banker and a diplomatist of some eminence. After marriage, however, this gentleman neglected and perhaps even more positively ill-treated her. Having passed with him some wretched years, she died. At least her condition so closely resembled death as to receive everyone who saw her. She was buried, not in a vault, but in an ordinary grave in the village of her nativity. Filled with despair and still inflamed by the memory of a profound attachment, the lover journeys from the capital to the remote province in which the village lies, with the romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse and possessing himself of its luxuriant tresses. He reaches the grave. At midnight, he unearths the coffin, opens it, and is in the act of detaching the hair when he's arrested by the unclosing of the beloved eyes. In fact, the lady had been buried alive. Vitality had not altogether departed, and she was aroused by the caresses of her lover from the lethargy which had been mistaken for death. He bore her frantically to his lodgings in the village. He employed certain powerful restoratives suggested by no little medical learning— in fine, she revived. She recognized her preserver. She remained with him until, by slow degrees, she fully recovered her original health. Her woman's heart was not adamant, and this last lesson of love sufficed to soften it. She bestowed it upon Basut, 
she returned no more to her husband, but concealing from him her resurrection, fled with her lover to America. Twenty years afterward, the two returned to France, in the persuasion that time had so greatly altered the lady's appearance that her friends would be unable to recognize her. They were mistaken, however, for at the first meeting, Monsieur Renel did actually recognize and make claim to his wife. This claim she resisted, and a judicial tribunal sustained her in her resistance, deciding that the peculiar circumstances with the long lapse of years had extinguished, not only equitably, but legally the authority of the husband. The tragical journal of Leipzig, a periodical of high authority and merit, which some American bookseller would do well to translate and republish, records in a late number a very distressing event of the character in question. An officer of artillery, a man of gigantic stature and of robust health, being thrown from an unmanageable horse, received a very severe contusion upon the head, which rendered him insensible at once. The skull was slightly fractured, but no immediate danger was apprehended. Trepanning was accomplished successfully. He was bled, and many other of the ordinary means of relief were adopted. Gradually, however, he fell into a more and more hopeless state of stupor, and finally it was thought that he died. The weather was warm, and he was buried with indecent haste in one of the public cemeteries. His funeral took place on Thursday. On the Sunday following, the grounds of the cemetery were as usual much thronged with visitors, and about noon an intense excitement was created by the declaration of a peasant that while sitting upon the grave of the officer he had distinctly felt a commotion of the earth— as if occasioned by someone struggling beneath. At first, little attention was paid to the man's asservation. But his evident terror, and the dogged obstinacy with which he persisted in his story had at length their natural effect upon the crowd. Spades were hurriedly procured, and the grave, which was shamefully shallow, was in a few minutes so far thrown open that the head of its occupant appeared. He was then seemingly dead. But he sat nearly erect within his coffin, the lid of which, in his furious struggles, he had partially uplifted. He was forthwith conveyed to the nearest hospital and there pronounced to be still living, although in a sphytic condition. After some hours, he revived, recognized individuals of his acquaintance, and in broken sentences spoke of his agonies in the grave. From what he related, it was clear that he must have been conscious of life for more than an hour, while inhumed, before relapsing into insensibility, the grave was carelessly and loosely filled with an exceedingly poor soil, and thus some air was necessarily admitted. He heard the footsteps of the crowd overhead and endeavored to make himself heard in turn. It was the tumult within the grounds of the cemetery, he said, which appeared to awaken him from a deep sleep. But no sooner was he awake than he became fully aware of the awful horrors of his position. This patient, it is recorded, was doing well and seemed to be in a fair way of ultimate recovery— but fell victim to the quackeries of medical experiment. A galvanic battery was applied, and he suddenly expired in one of those ecstatic paroxysms which occasionally it superinduces. The mention of the galvanic battery, nevertheless, recalls to my memory a well-known and very extraordinary case in point, where its action proved the means of restoring to animation a young attorney of London, who had been interred for two days. This occurred in 1831 and created at the time a very profound sensation, wherever it was made the subject of converse. The patient, Mr. Edward Stapleton, had died apparently of typhus fever, accompanied with some anomalous symptoms which had excited the curiosity of its medical attendants. Upon his seeming decease, his friends were requested to sanction a post-mortem examination, but declined to permit it. As often happens when such refusals are made, the practitioners resolved to disinter the body and dissect it at leisure. In private, arrangements were easily effected with some of the numerous corpse of body snatchers, with which London abounds, and upon the third night after the funeral, the supposed corpse was unearthed from a grave eight feet deep, and deposited in the opening chamber of one of the private hospitals. An incision of some extent had been actually made in the abdomen when the fresh and undecayed appearance of the subject suggested an application of the battery. One experiment succeeded another, and the customary effects supervened with nothing to characterize them in any respect except upon one or two occasions, a more than ordinary degree of lifelikeness in the convulsive action. It grew late. The day was about to dawn, and it was thought expedient at length to proceed at once to the dissection. A student, however, was especially desirous of testing a theory of his own, and insisted upon applying the battery to one of his pectoral muscles. 
A rough gash was made and a wire hastily brought in contact. When the patient, with a hurried but quite unconvulsive movement, arose from the table, stepped into the middle of the floor, gazed about him uneasily for a few seconds, and then spoke. What he said was unintelligible, but the words were uttered. The syllabification was distinct. Having spoken, he fell heavily to the floor. For some moments, all were paralyzed with awe, but the urgency of the case soon restored them from their presence of mind. It was seen that Mr. Stapleton was alive, although in a swoon. Upon exhibition of ether, he revived and was rapidly restored to health and to the society of his friends, from whom, however, all knowledge of his resuscitation was withheld until a relapse was no longer to be apprehended. Their wonder, their rapturous astonishment may be conceived. The most thrilling peculiarity of this incident, nevertheless, is involved in what Mr. S. himself asserts. He declares that at no period was he altogether insensible, that dully and confusedly he was aware of everything which happened to him, from the moment in which he was pronounced dead by his physicians, to that in which he fell swooning to the floor of the hospital, I am alive, or the uncomprehended words which, upon recognizing the locality of the dissecting room, he had endeavored in his extremity to utter. It were an easy matter to multiply such histories as these, but I forbear for indeed we have no need of such to establish the fact that premature interments occur. When we reflect how very rarely, from the nature of the case, we have it in our power to detect them, we must admit that they may frequently occur without our cognizance. Scarcely in truth is a graveyard ever encroached upon, for any purpose to any great extent, that skeletons are not found in postures which suggest the most fearful of suspicions. Fearful indeed the suspicion, but more fearful the doom— it may be asserted, without hesitation, that no event is so terribly well adapted to inspire the supremeness of bodily and of mental distress, as is burial before death, the unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes from the damp earth, the clinging to the death garments, the rigid embrace of the narrow house, the blackness of the absolute night, the silence like a sea that overwhelms, the unseen but palpable presence of the conqueror worm, these things, with the thoughts of the air and grass above, with memory of dear friends who would fly to save us if but informed of our fate, and with consciousness that of this fate they can never be informed, that our hopeless portion is that of the really dead. These considerations, I say, carry into the heart, which still palpitates a degree of appalling and intolerable horror from which the most daring imagination must recoil. We know nothing so agonizing upon earth— we can dream of nothing half so hideous in the realms of the nethermost hell. And thus all narratives upon this topic have an interest profound. An interest, nevertheless, which through the sacred awe of the topic itself very properly and very peculiarly depends upon our conviction of the truth of the matter narrated. What I have now to tell is of my own actual knowledge, of my own positive and personal experience— for several years, I had been subject to attacks of the singular disorder which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, in default of a more definitive title. Although both the immediate and the predisposing causes and even the actual diagnosis of this disease are still mysterious, its obvious and apparent character is sufficiently well understood. Its variations seem to be chiefly of degree. Sometimes the patient lies for a day only or even for a shorter period, in a species of exaggerated lethargy. He is senseless and externally motionless, but the pulsation of the heart is still faintly perceptible. Some traces of warmth remain. A slight color lingers within the center of the cheek, and upon application of a mirror to the lips, we can detect a torpid, unequal, and vacillating action of the lungs. Then again, the duration of the trace is for weeks, even for months, while the closest scrutiny— and the most rigorous medical tests fail to establish any material distinction between the state of the sufferer and what we conceive of absolute death. Very usually he is saved from premature interment solely by the knowledge of his friends that he's been previously subject to catalepsy, by the consequent suspicion excited, and above all by the non-appearance of decay. The advances of the malady are luckily gradual. The first manifestations, although marked, are unequivocal— the fits grow successfully more and more distinctive, and endure each for a longer term than the preceding. In this lies the principal security from inhumation. 
the unfortunate whose first attack should be the extreme character which is occasionally seen, would almost inevitably be consigned alive to the tomb. My own case differed in no important particular from those mentioned in medical books. Sometimes, without any apparent cause, I sank, little by little, into a condition of semi-syncope, or half-swoon. And in this condition, without pain, without ability to stir, or strictly speaking, to think, but with a dull, lethargic consciousness of life and of the presence of those who surrounded my bed, I remained until the crisis of the disease restored me suddenly to perfect sensation. At other times, I was quickly and impetuously smitten. I grew sick and numb and chilly and dizzy and so fell prostrate at once. Then for weeks, all was void and black and silent, and nothing became the universe. Total annihilation could be no more. From these latter attacks, I awoke, however, with a gradation slow in proportion to the suddenness of the seizure. Just as the day dawns to the friendless and houseless beggar who roams the streets throughout the long, desolate winter night, just so tardily, just so wearily, just so cheerily came back the light of the soul to me. Apart from the tendency to trance, however, my general health appeared to be good, nor could I perceive that it was at all affected by the one prevalent malady— unless indeed an idiosyncrasy in my ordinary sleep may be looked upon as superinduced. Upon awaking from slumber, I could never gain at once thorough possession of my senses, and always remained for many minutes in much bewilderment and perplexity, the mental faculties in general, but the memory in especial being in condition of absolute abeyance. In all that I endured, there was no physical suffering but of moral distress and infinitude. My fancy grew charnel. I talked of worms, of tombs, and epitaphs. I was lost in reveries of death, and the idea of premature burial held continual possession of my brain. The ghastly danger to which I was subjected haunted me day and night. In the former, the torture of meditation was excessive. In the latter, supreme. When the grim darkness overspread the earth then, with every horror of thought, I shook. Shook as the quivering plumes upon the hearse. When nature could endure wakefulness no longer, it was with a struggle that I consented to sleep, for I shuddered to reflect that upon waking, I might find myself the tenant of a grave. And when finally I sank into slumber, it was only to rush at once into a world of phantasms, above which, with vast, sable, overshadowing wing, hovered predominant the one sepulchral idea. From the innumerable images of gloom which thus oppressed me in dreams— I select for record but a solitary vision. Methought I was immersed in a cataleptic trance of more than usual duration and profundity. Suddenly there came an icy hand upon my forehead, and an impatient, gibbering voice whispered the word, Arise within my ear. I sat erect. The darkness was total. I could not see the figure of him who had aroused me. I could call to mind neither the period at which I had fallen into the trance, nor the locality in which I then lay. While I remained motionless and busied in endeavors to collect my thought, the cold hand grasped me fiercely by the wrist, shaking it petulantly while the gibbering voice said again, Arise, did I not bid thee arise? And who, I demanded, art thou? I have no name in the regions which I inhabit, replied the voice mournfully. I was mortal but am fiend. I was merciless but am pitiful. Thou dost feel that I shudder. My teeth chatter as I speak, yet it is not with the chilliness of the night, but the night without end. But this hideousness is insufferable. How canst thou tranquilly sleep? I cannot rest for the cry of these great agonies. These sights are more than I can bear. Get thee up, come with me into the outer night, and let me unfold to thee the graves. Is not this a spectacle of woe? Behold. I looked and the unseen figure which still grasped me by the wrist had caused to be thrown open the graves of all mankind, and from each issued the faint phosphoric radiance of decay, so that I could see into the innermost recesses and there view the shrouded bodies in their sad and solemn slumbers with the worm. But alas, the real sleepers were fewer, by many millions than those who slumbered not at all, and there was a feeble struggling, and there was a general sad unrest, and from out the depths of the countless pits there came a melancholy rustling from the garments of the buried, and of those who seemed tranquilly to repose. I saw that a vast number had changed, in a greater or less degree, the rigid and uneasy position in which they had originally been entombed. 
and the voice again said to me as I gazed, Is it not, oh, is it not a pitiful sight? But before I could find words to reply, the figure had ceased to grasp my wrist. The phosphoric lights expired, and the graves were closed with a sudden violence. While from out them arose a tumult of despairing cries, saying again, Is it not, oh God, is it not a very pitiful sight? Fantasies such as these, presenting themselves at night, extended their terrific influence far into my waking hours. My nerves became thoroughly unstrung, and I fell a prey to perpetual horror. I hesitated to rise or to walk or to indulge in any exercise that would carry me from home. In fact, I no longer dared trust myself out of the immediate presence of those who were aware of my proneness to catalepsy. Lest falling into one of my usual fits, I should be buried before my real condition could be ascertained. I doubted the care, the fidelity of my dearest friends. I dreaded that in some trance of more than customary duration, they might be prevailed upon to regard me as irrecoverable. I even went so far as to fear that as I occasioned much trouble, they might be glad to consider any very protracted attack a sufficient excuse for getting rid of me altogether. It was in vain they endeavored to reassure me by the most solemn promises. I exacted the most sacred oaths, that under no circumstances they would bury me until decomposition had so materially advanced as to render further preservation impossible. And even then, my mortal terrors would listen to no reason— would accept no consolation. I entered into a series of elaborate precautions. Among other things, I had the family vault so remodeled as to admit of being readily opened from within. The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There were arrangements also for the free admission of air and light, and convenient receptacles for food and water within immediate reach of the coffin intended for my reception. This coffin was warmly and softly padded, and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of the vault door, with the addition of springs so contrived that the feeblest movement of the body would be sufficient to set it at liberty. Besides all this, there was suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell. The rope of which it was designed should extend through a hole in the coffin and so be fastened to one of the hands of the corpse. But alas, what avails the vigilance against the destiny of man— not even these well-contrived securities suffice to save from the uttermost agonies of living inhumation, a wretch to these agonies foredoomed. There arrived an epoch, as often before there had arrived, in which I found myself emerging from total unconsciousness into the first feeble and indefinite sense of existence. Slowly, with a tortoise gradation, approached the faint gray dawn of the cycle day, a torpid uneasiness, an apathetic endurance of dull pain, no care, no hope, no effort. Then, after a long interval, a ringing in the ears. Then, after a lapse still longer, a prickling or tingling sensation in the extremities. Then, a seemingly eternal period of pleasurable quiescence during which the awakening feelings are struggling into thought. Then a brief resinking into non-entity. Then a sudden recovery. At length, the slight quivering of an eyelid, and immediately thereupon, an electric shock of a terror, deadly and indefinite, which sends the blood into torrents from the temples to the heart. And now the first positive effort to think. And now the first endeavor to remember. And now a partial and evanescent success. And now the memory has so far regained its dominion that in some measure, I'm cognizant of my state. I feel that I'm not awaking from ordinary sleep, I recollect that I've been subject to catalepsy. And now, at last, as if by the rush of an ocean, my shuddering spirit is overwhelmed by the one grim danger, by the one spectral and ever-prevalent idea. For some minutes after this fancy possessed me, I remained without motion. And why? I could not summon courage to move. I dared not make the effort which was to satisfy me of my fate. And yet there was something at my heart which whispered me it was sure— Despair, such as no other species of wretchedness ever calls into being. Despair alone urged me, after long irresolution, to uplift the heavy lids of my eyes. I uplifted them. It was dark. All dark. I knew that the fit was over. I knew that the crisis of my disorder had long passed. I knew that I had now fully recovered the use of my visual faculties. And yet it was dark. All dark. 
the intense and utter raylessness of the night that endureth forevermore. I endeavored to shriek, and my lips and my parched tongue moved convulsively together in the attempt, but no voice issued from the cavernous lungs which oppressed as if by the weight of some incumbent mountain, gasped and palpitated with the heart at every elaborate and struggling inspiration. The movement of the jaws in this effort to cry aloud showed me that they were bound up, as is usual with the dead. I felt, too, that I lay upon some hard substance, and by something similar to my sides were also closely compressed. So far I had not ventured to stir any of my limbs, but now I violently threw up my arms, which had been lying at length with the wrists crossed. They struck a solid wooden substance, which extended above my person at an elevation of not more than six inches from my face. I could no longer doubt that I reposed within a coffin at last. And now, amid all my infinite miseries, came sweetly the cherub hope, for I thought of my precautions. I writhed and made spasmodic exertions to force open the lid. It would not move. I felt my wrists for the bell rope. It was not to be found, and now the comforter fled forever, and a still sterner despair reigned triumphant. I could not help perceiving the absence of the paddings which I had so carefully prepared. And then, too, there came suddenly to my nostrils the strong, peculiar odor of moist earth. The conclusion was irresistible. I was not within the vault. I had fallen into a trance while absent from home, all among strangers. When or how, I could not remember. And it was they who had buried me as a dog, nailed up in some common coffin, and thrust deep, deep, and forever into some ordinary and nameless grave. As this awful conviction forced itself thus into the innermost chambers of my soul, I once again struggled to cry aloud, and in the second endeavor I succeeded. A long, wild, and continuous shriek or yell of agony resounded through the realms of the subterranean night. Hello, hello there, said a gruff voice in reply. What the devil's the matter now, said a second. Get out of that, said a third. What do you mean by yelling in that ear kind of style like a catty mount, said a fourth. And hereupon I was seized and shaken without ceremony for several minutes by a junto of very rough-looking individuals. They did not arouse me from my slumber, for I was wide awake when I screamed, but they restored me to the full possession of my memory. This adventure occurred near Richmond in Virginia. Accompanied by a friend, I had proceeded upon a gunning expedition, some miles down the banks of the James River. Night approached, and we were overtaken by a storm. The cabin of a small sloop, lying an anchor in the stream and laden with garden mold, afforded us the only available shelter. We made the best of it and passed the night on board. I slept in one of the only two berths in the vessel, and the berths of a sloop of sixty or twenty tons need scarcely be described. That which I occupied had no bedding of any kind. Its extreme width was eighteen inches. The distance of its bottom from the deck overhead was precisely the same. I found it a matter of exceeding difficulty to squeeze myself in. Nevertheless, I slept soundly in the whole of my vision, for it was no dream and no nightmare arose naturally from the circumstances of my position— from my ordinary bias of thought, and from the difficulty to which I have alluded of collecting my senses and especially of regaining my memory for a long time after awaking from slumber. The men who shook me were the crew of the sloop and some laborers engaged to unload it. From the load itself came the earthly smell. The bandage about the jaws was a silk handkerchief in which I had bound up my head in default of my customary nightcap. The tortures endured, however, were indubitably quite equal for the time to those of actual sepulture. They were fearfully, they were inconceivably hideous, but out of evil proceeded good, for their very excess wrought in my spirit an inevitable revulsion. My soul acquired tone, acquired temper. I went abroad. I took vigorous exercise. I breathed the free air of heaven. I thought upon other subjects than death. I discarded my medical books. Buchan I burned. I read no night thoughts. No fustian about churchyards. No bugaboo tales such as this. In short, I became a new man and lived a man's life. From that memorable night, I dismissed forever my charnel apprehensions and with them vanished the cataleptic disorder, of which perhaps they had been less the consequence than the cause. There are moments when, even to the sober eye of reason— the world of our sad humanity may assume the semblance of a hell. 
But the imagination of man is no car this, to explore with impunity its every cavern. Alas, the grim legion of sepulchral terrors cannot be regarded as altogether fanciful, but like the demons in whose company Ephraseb made his voyage down the Oxus. They must sleep. They will devour us. They must be suffered to slumber or we perish. Thank you for joining Freya's Fairy Tales. Be sure to come back next week for Lila's journey to holding her own fairy tale in her hands and to hear one of her favorite fairy tales.